Welcome to Cheek by Gels podcast. Not true, but useful. This is episode nine, character and process. Hi, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over the course of this podcast, I'm holding a series of interviews with Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the artistic directors behind the theatre company Cheek by Jowl. Over the course of a 40-year collaboration which has taken them all over the world, they've developed a creative philosophy which they describe as not true, but useful in approaching life and the theatre. Today, I'm on the line with Declan Donnellan, and we're going to be talking about how to think about building a character in rehearsal. Hello, Declan. Hello, Lucy. So we're recording this in early June of the COVID-19 lockdown. And the big question going about the industry right now is what theatre is going to look like on the other side of this and how we're going to survive this unprecedented threat to live performance. What are your thoughts about that? Well, we have no idea what the economic structure for subsidised theatre is going to be, or even commercial theatre is going to be when this finishes. And we must argue very, very vociferously indeed for the government to support uh, large art structures, small art structures as well. I mean, arts in general, it's incredibly important to do so. Um, and we must do that passionately, and it won't be very easy. We'll have to argue on grounds of economics, wages being lost, God knows, at theatres, good for tourism, that all of those things are incredibly important. But it's also extremely important for the mental health of people. Like any other art, theatre is an illusion, and an illusion is utterly different from a delusion. Art is an illusion, so is theatre that offers us the possibility of getting back, however briefly, to a more real world. But the problem is that the world that's taking place around us, that's evolving around us, is increasingly delusional. It always has been. It just now has um, computer graphics to technologically advance our profound drive to delude ourselves. And arts is quite a good way of getting back to some real things. And that's why we need art very, very, very much at the moment. So today, we're going to focus on the idea of building a character, which is a thorny problem at the heart of any theatre process. How does an actor step into the shoes of another person and embody them on stage? And how do we go about supporting this in a rehearsal room? So Declan, what are your thoughts on character? I think character is a slightly scary word. I mean, I think it's a a kind of frightening thing that you can scare actors with. My character wouldn't do this. Would your character do that? I think the first thing that we have to remember about character is that there's no such thing as a character. If you see that character is a state, the very, very important rule that underpins this, and I, I don't think I come out with too many rules, but there is a rule, and the rule is this. There is no such thing as a state. There are only processes, and we don't like it. Now, problem is that we we kind of want there to be states and we know we're only here for a temporary time we know that everything's in a process of growth and decay anything that's alive must die we kind of know that and we don't like it so this is this is the problem the and we don't like is the big problem the idea that somebody is a character is really kind of delusional Macbeth has a really interesting line when he at the beginning when he says shake so my single state of man you know that um the prophecy is coming true shake so my single state of man what single state of man who you know, it's like he's got some right to be one thing and these prophecies have somehow deprived him of his inalienable right to be a one authentic thing i think it's very important to realize that we're not 
one thing, that we can be many different things. And I think that the really important thing about acting is that the actor does something very revolutionary in front of the audience. And the actor says, you know, sometimes I act being me, but now I'm going to act being somebody else. And it's that moment of the actor's transformation into somebody else that is so moving and so health-giving, I think. Because we really need to be relieved of these fantasies of authenticity, which we get sold all the time. And we have to understand that we can be many, many different things. And the actor enacts that in front of us. And that's why the actor is very, very precious indeed. But we can be all sorts of different things. That doesn't mean to say that we're liars, although that's what Plato thought. Plato said that actors were professional liars and shouldn't be allowed to vote. But we are very different things and it, it hurts us. And we don't like it because we don't like to think we're so motile because that might mean that things come to an end. That might mean, oh, that I come to an end. We start with the basic beautiful lie of the mother with the baby saying, I see you, you see me, in which the assumption is that I'm constant, you are constant, and seeing is constant. I see you, you see me. And we would not be grateful to a mother who told us the actual truth, which was, I see you, but you must understand that I is always changing, you is always changing, and that sense of perception between us is always also in flux. <laughs> you wouldn't be very grateful to your mum if she told you it like that too soon. And we have to spend the rest of our lives, several decades, kind of unpicking ourselves from that place. And it's a very pleasant place to be a sort of place where we're completely secure and nothing ever changes. Now, how does that affect character? I think it's very dangerous to look at another human being and think, oh, I know their character. I've got him sussed. I know who he is. We are always going to be a lot of different things. We can't freeze ourselves into some concrete, unchanging thing. I guess nobody knows my character better than me, arguably, but I don't know what I'm capable of doing or saying under extreme circumstances. I don't know. So I, I don't really know. I don't really un have an understanding of character like that. I mean, the idea that you, you have a character and that means you know what your character is going to do. God, I, I don't understand that world at all. I don't know what I'm going to do. What I say again is I'm always saying it's not true, but it's useful. It's not true, but it's useful. I think that one of the things that we can say about Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, or about Othello, or about Hamlet, or about King Lear, is that they have something in common, and that is that they, they spend their lives trying to keep themselves together. In other words, that a character is a human being who's trying to stop themselves from disintegrating. That sounds extremely bleak, but I have found it extremely useful. And when I apply this way of thinking to something like The Three Sisters, then I find the play blossoms open. Of course, there are many moral objections one can raise, saying, are you saying there's no peace? And I would reply, maybe there's peace. I'd love some peace. But that isn't normally the problem of what I'm putting on stage. What I'm putting on stage is normally people who are brought to the edge of something, and that we see people facing the rim of control where they're desperately trying to keep themselves together but the fact that they're trying to stop themselves disintegrating i find incredibly useful because it means that you start with an extraordinary pack of energy often when we look at people we think we know about them i think sometimes when we look at other people people that might you know might cross our path of vision in the bus and we might make immediate judgments about them it's quite useful sometimes to think that maybe that person is a hero 
struggling to stop themselves from disintegrating, struggling to keep themselves together. And they're at the center of a struggle to survive, which they perceive in some way to be epic, which is why I think people like epics, because it reflects our inner life. It's not escapism to something else. Of course, I'm not saying that people walk around the streets every day absolutely terrified in a conscious way that they might fly apart. But I think we might be very surprised to discover that in extremists that we have this unpleasant sensation of being about to disintegrate. I think on the whole, our internal lives are more bumpy than we care to admit. And of course, we disguise this from each other by pretend adult syndrome. But you know, if somebody I loved was in intensive care and, and on a life support machine on a ventilator tonight, a big part of my energy would be trying to hold myself together, trying to hold it together to get through the night. Um, characters will probably not always be aware of falling apart, but if you supply it, it has a strange effect of making a lot of plays become much more accessible, that there is an already unconscious threat in the Prozorov sisters, or in Lady Bracknell, or in Benedict and Beatrice. They're powered by a dread of disintegration. There's always a threat having to face this enormous menace to their identity. So watching somebody in the process of disintegration, that's clearly not a state. So in other words, if a character is struggling to keep themselves together, then they're not a fixed thing that we can define, but an identity in flux. So it's a losing battle to try and pin down who a character is. But then I suppose the problem is, if we can't go about capturing a character, how can we go about approaching one in rehearsals? What absolutely doesn't work is this. The idea that character is something that's neutral until something acts upon it from the outside. I don't think that's useful for the actor. I think that the character and the circumstances are already uh, full of problem. And I suspect that's true for us all in the relatively low stakes of the rest of our lives. But the more we come to to encounter the predicament, the more those things become true. You know, to, to begin with, yes, you, maybe you have to pin things down and start with circumstances, start with a simple story, um, as we would in the first few days of rehearsal. But then you have to kind of let the play happen to you and not always be trying to control the play. And in a great play like Macbeth, you start to realise creepy things, like the fact that are they plotting to kill Duncan? Or are they performing as people who are going to kill Duncan? There's a sort of extraordinary sense sometimes of them watching their own performance. And I think that's very human. And it goes right down through the heart of Shakespeare, which is why he's always modern, which is he, he gets down to the essential inauthenticity of what it is to be a human being. He dares to go into that place. All of the characters, even Violet, calls herself poor monster. And she and Iago, in different ways, both say, I'm not who I am. That there's a sense of that they, people don't know who they are. They lose their identity. Am I a real thing or am I just watching myself perform being somebody? And it's why Shakespeare connects to us in such an important way that's both chilling and very warm, actually, because we very often we feel less lonely. So in the end, we have a greater capacity to relate to each other with love, I hope. So it sounds like we should be cautious of thinking about a character as a fixed identity, because struggling to even define your own identity to yourself is part of the experience of being human. And that's a never-ending process. Yes, there's no such thing as a fixed state. There's only flux. We have two modern expressions which are very useful. One is he can't really hold himself together anymore. And it's very interesting. It's very accurate, I think, because 
it implies that there's an already existing force to explode outwards and that you're kind of trying to hold something in. When I was a child, I used to love the Superman comics and he had that cape that was, um, he, he'd throw it over bombs and things. So inside that cape, he could enclose this explosion and make us all safe. Um, and I think that's an interesting mythic shape that you're trying to keep it together. The other very interesting expression that's kind of corollary to that is um, he's lost the plot. It's quite an interesting line too. So let's go back to Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. They're struggling to survive. I think they're just struggling to maintain their life. I don't think they're killing the King of Scotland because they want promotion or because there's something they see that they want. I think at the end, it's not that. I think if they don't do this, they're going to blow apart. That it's all to do with the negative. They're going to get this, because if they don't get him, they'll blow apart. And the terrible thing is he's there that night, and that means they'll really blow apart. I mean, if he goes in the morning and they haven't killed him that night, then they'll really blow apart apart. That everything seems to add to this energy of the fact that there will be total cataclysmic disaster unless they act now. So if we spend rehearsals trying to define a character, we're probably missing the point. No, you can't ever define a character. It is always moving. And it sort of does sound a bit bleak. You know, we're always trying to solve an unsolvable situation. It's kind of, you know, seeing it as it is. You know, we can solve it for a bit. And solving it isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, to be doing and, you know, or the trying to solve it or finding temporary solutions isn't necessarily a bad thing. But feeling that we have solved it is a danger, I think. People do all the time think of things as being a state. But, of course, we tend then to have to suffer the consequences of thinking that things are states. Um, when in fact they are changing all the time. And there is no neutrality. We have fantasies of neutrality. We have fantasies of unchangingness. It sounds like trying to capture a character is like pinning down a butterfly. By catching it, you kill it. So how would you go about working with actors to keep this butterfly alive when building a character? I suppose I should be offering steps to get into character. What I'm trying to say is I don't really believe in character like that. It's sort of like going up the wrong tree, really. I think, as usual... I'm afraid thinking what the dread is normally helps you to get into it. And I think sort of examining Lady Macbeth, we say she's ambitious, but it's not so much looking for the positive feeling of, um, oh, I want to be Queen of Scotland. It's more useful, I think, to, to dread failing to be Queen of Scotland or to dread being too weak to push him into doing what he really ought to do is the sort of negative thing that tends to move us along, the fear of failure. Thinking about dread is, is quite a good tool to enable us to walk in another person's shoes. We can never fully sympathise with another person. We can never be another person. But we can try to empathise with them. And although we can't become them, we can walk, imagine what it might be like to walk in their shoes. Um, and that means walking in their predicament. And that means annexing somehow their dread. I think it's because it's not what people say usually. It sounds rather despairing or cynical. But very often things come across as being cynical because we're so used to the path of sentimentality. I mean, you could say to somebody, well, you have to remember you're going to die. And they might reply, well, that's very cynical. You think, well, no, it, it's realistic. There are lots of different types of good acting. There are lots of different ways to rehearse. There are all sorts of things. It depends what works for you. What I'm saying is I think that there's a level beyond thinking in terms of character and the thing that I, I don't much like is that when words like character action objective super objective when these become 
things that start to frighten the actor. Now, the words that I use, which are words like, you know, encounter, threshold, predicament, these could also, of course, become, you know, terrible things that frighten the actor, and that would make me very unhappy. What I'm saying is that for now, they work for me, and I personally, myself, get a lot of comfort from thinking of those words in that way. They give me a certain energy and a certain hope, actually, and, and the sense that I can breathe and I can move on. It's really reassuring to hear you talk like this, because this sounds like another idea which is not true, but useful. Not a theory to bash ourselves around the head with, but another way of approaching the work which might open up our imaginations a bit. Yeah, sort of. And the other, but the, the unreassuring thing is the horrible <laughs> principle that nothing works twice. <laughs> That's, I'm afraid, that so we have to build up common sense, we need to forgive ourselves, we need to go for it with some sort of sense of humour and try a bit better next time. These There are some things that have worked for me and they give me a bit of a breathing space. The important thing is to open a space in which one can breathe and not to frighten myself or the actors or the writers or whoever it is with too many concepts that constrict our capacity to breathe. It's also interesting that as we come towards the end of this series of the podcast, we've encountered lots of useful terms which you use in rehearsals, but not once have we talked about the word target, which is a word you used a lot in your book, The Actor and the Target. It's fascinating to hear how your approach is always changing. Well, thank you. Um, no, I, I don't use the target as a word very much in rehearsal anymore, if ever. Not because I think it's not useful, because it just makes me feel a bit self-conscious. You know, I, I, I'm talking to people and I, I don't want there to be anything between us. And then I see that book with the hole in the middle of it sort of hoving into view. <laughs> and, and I kind of need to get on with my life, you know. But I think the action of the target is, I reread it recently, and I, I think it's very useful. It's particularly useful if you suffer the paralysis of block. And there are, it also has some philosophical things in it that are important. The things I'm talking about now, I wouldn't say in a rehearsal, you know, Lucy, these things I'm talking to you about now, there would be no place for them in, in the five or six weeks of rehearsal. That just wouldn't thank me very much. I, I might talk to them, actors about it, particularly if they've been in a show for years, you know, I might talk a bit more philosophically like that. But I always think it's, it's quite useful to think like this almost when we're not working because it aligns us a little bit better and maybe puts a bit more lead in our pencils, a bit more blood in our veins for when we do work to think a little bit about what it is that we're, we're doing overall. Let's put it this way, you know, when I when I get disillusioned and depressed and feel sometimes a bit futile and, and, and wonder what I'm doing, then I have to say that Nick Ormerod very often looks at me and says, you know, what you really need to do is read your own book because it's, it's, he feels it's a really good piece of advice for myself. So I, I can't possibly say those things um, as a preacher man. I, I, you know, I, I need to listen myself, physician heal thyself. There are ways of looking at things that kind of cheer me up when I feel in an impasse, and I offer to share them, that's all. I mean, they're not a magic way. These words will become defunct after a while. If they become ossified, things do become ossified, and they need to be re-examined. They might not work for everybody. I've found them useful. I mean, maybe you won't, <laughs> but um, off you go. Yeah, it reminds me of something Stanislavski said in his own writing, which was that what he was sharing was his tools, but the most useful thing people could do was to come up with their own. Oh, he's absolutely right, yes. It's the spirit of Stanislavski that's so triumphant. And, you know, one should always remember, you know, with him or with any of the people who've written great texts that are there to help us, um, 
that it's the spirit of them that matters, not the letter of them. So, you know, the, the really important things with Stanislav is the absolute spirit and his, his love of life. And I think you get an awful lot more out of my life in art than you do from the other books, actually. That's the spirit. I really don't think one should be getting involved with fourth walls. I mean, there are lots of things that were to do with the conditions of the period in which he was writing that are, are perhaps not so irrelevant now. So let's go back to thinking about character. So would you say that part of the joy of trying to embody a character in a play is that we can't define something entirely, that there will always be something deliciously mysterious about a character? Yes. When we try to get to know other people, we do make generalisations about other people. You know, it's like in real life, you see couples, you think, oh, I can see what's going on there. Or, but you never know. And I mean, we are a mystery to ourselves. We do not understand ourselves fully. The greater part of love, I think, is respecting the mystery of somebody else. There's a whole set of things about other people that we can't possibly know. But there are parameters, you know, that different characters do different things. And we need to look at what people do, really, rather than what they say. And this is the really important thing about character. Really, what people say is interesting, but it's what they do that really matters. What's hugely interesting is the gap between what they say and what they do. So, you know, our great quell and murdering a little old man in, in, in the bedroom upstairs is, you know, that's quite a big distance. And that's a very central part of Lady Macbeth's character, and Macbeth's characters, that not facing up to what they are doing. And what the character says is important. From what they say, you can intuit quite a lot about what they most dread, who they don't want to be, the dread of exposure. But what they do and they don't do is much more important than what somebody says. There are ways that you can begin like that, so I suggest you begin traditionally, but know that in the end of the day, what you're doing is you're stopping yourself disintegrating. Just imagine that we're very insecure. Just imagine that we're part of this epic struggle. Just imagine that most of the energy we expend in the day is keeping ourselves together. Imagine if that was a, a model for how a human being is. Would that be useful? And all I can say is I found that quite useful. I think many concepts we have of motive, character, circumstances come in because we want to control things and it doesn't really help because when we go to the theatre one of the things you're doing is going to see people facing something that's out of control or trying to bring something into control. I think though that every rehearsal period will be different and every actor's insights will be very different, every director's the space will be very different, there'll be all sorts of different energies coming up but I think that there are huge mysteries at the heart of it that people kind of solve in different ways I, I'd only pray for them never to be completely solved, that we need to explain enough for the audience to be able to follow but at the end of the I hope that we're still all going to contemplate a mystery together. In this part of the podcast, we go on a deep dive through a scene to help us unpack today's topic. Once again, we've chosen Act 1, Scene 7 of Macbeth because it's a scene so packed with brilliant human interactions. As a quick sum up for any listeners not familiar with this play, this is a scene where Macbeth has left a dinner party which he is throwing for the King of Scotland and which is taking place just out of sight off stage. He intends to murder the King that night and, tormented by the plan, he's escaped to talk to the audience about whether he should call it off. The text of this scene is in the podcast notes, but Declan, could you kick us off by reading this amazing speech? What I think is interesting about this speech is that in the speech we actually witness Macbeth disintegrating. And he begins the speech by telling us, sort of, look at me, I've, I've got you all under control, I've got, everything's cool, I'm not emotional, I know exactly what I'm doing. And then we watch him disintegrating from that point. You don't have to do anything, he's auto-destruct. But I'll just read it to you. 
Then Macbeth comes on, looks at us and says, if it were done when it is done, then to a well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we'd jump the life to come. But in these cases we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should, against his murderer, shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides this, Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, have been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. And pity, like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye that tears shall drown the wind. Thanks, Declan. There's so many places to begin here when we talk about character. But it does seem to reveal exactly what you were saying about a character not being a state but a process. It sounds like Macbeth in this speech would love it if he could fix himself into a state, to make up his mind and feel secure. But his problem is that his own thoughts, his own self, are changing so fast for him. He can't keep up. He's struggling to control it. Would you say that this is a portrait of a man in flux? We can think about that in several different ways. The first most useful way to think is always spatially. He tries to make a safe space with us. And of course, he wants that space to be neutral so that he can talk in the way that he wants to talk. He wants to be able to control the rules of the game. And he's thinking he can sort of get rid of the wonderful mess that we have in our minds that makes us human. The really bizarre thing um, is that for the first line and a half, you might think he was explaining to us how to make an omelette. If it were done, when it were done, then it were, well, it were done quickly. It's the most trivial way of expressing this appalling thing that he's doing. But then he does start to unravel when he uses overblown words like if the assassination could travel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success. It's very funny reading in any of the editions. They all start to explain what surcease success means, you know, and they try to unravel the meaning. Well, I think it's a little bit funny because the whole point is that Macbeth doesn't want us to know what he means. He's using he's using words in a preposterous way, surcease, success, all of those sibilants. You think, what are you saying? He doesn't really want us to hear it, the, the intent, what he's doing. He's trying to make it hidden in very grand words. The thing is that Macbeth's having a kind of encounter with us in the audience and he's trying to control the relationship and he's saying, I'm in control, I know exactly what I'm doing. And he goes on and we watch him disintegrating before our eyes. This is something we talked about, I believe, in episode two. Um, but we must remember that no scene can take place without pressure from another scene threatening to break in. And the scene that bursts to get in is all the images. And it's going to erupt with the naked newborn babe that's going to crash through the ceiling into this safe space that he's trying to eke out in the caverns of his very messy imagination. Then this is heartbreaking because he talks about how much he adores Duncan, you know, how he loves Duncan. He'd like to live up to Duncan. You know, he's borne his faculties so meekly. He hasn't been overweening. He hasn't been a tyrant. That his virtues will plead like angels. And then as soon as angels come into his imagination, they break up this rickety little pretend safe space that he's tried to build for himself and us at the beginning of this speech. 
you know, that the angel comes crashing through the ceiling. The angel that he's been trying to keep out of his conversation crashes in. Now, let's just think of one thing spatially, which is where does the angel come from? It comes from Macbeth. It's another part of Macbeth. Macbeth's trying to keep a part of himself out of the relationship with us. So in order to have this relationship with us, he has to cut off his mercy, he has to cut off his guilt, he has to cut off his feeling, and it's a bloody hard work cutting off all of those things. He has to keep these out of the structure of what he's saying to us, and he can't do it, and they just start crashing in. So it's himself that's crashing in. He's tried to clear something in himself, and he can't actually clear it, and he falls apart in the speech. The eye in Macbeth, the little tiny weeny little bit of eye that's in each of us, is running frantically to keep up with the changing space. But that's partially him. He's changing all the time. So he tries to take control. He thinks he tries to take control of his life by saying, look, it's rational, it's efficient, there's no problem, I'm just going to kill him, it'll be simple, there'll be no blood, there'll be no mess, there'll be no feelings, it'll be absolutely fine, efficient, 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 efficient. But it doesn't work because the, the natural mess that we have starts flooding in on him and he keeps trying to lock it out. We've reached the last part of the podcast in which we answer questions which listeners have shared with us on social media. Our question today, Declan, is are there any writers who have had an important influence on the way that you think as a director? I mean, so many writers have influenced me in so many very different ways. Beckett, of course, um, and Joyce, two Irish writers I knew. Um, mostly, I, well, I think Beckett, the, as you once said, the terror of, the, of now. And um, his complete profound understanding of predicament that, you know, it's supposedly post-traumatic, what happens in the scenes, but actually the people are caught in, a, in an overwhelming predicament and as soon as you key into that that the drama is dependent that the theater is dependent on predicament not on dramatic action then it kind of starts to take your head off um and they're unbelievably powerful they kind of remain with me you know always those plays but also um james joyce i mean I, i'm very very fond of james joyce's short stories dubliners um which we wrote when he was very young um and they are all again about they're about an epiphanic revelation of a predicament, which means that you go through the story and then at the end of it, you suddenly get kind of an image that kind of punches you in the face and makes you, in a mysterious way, understand what's been going on through the whole thing. Well, not understand it. You see, that's wrong. You go through the story and you have a revelation, but the revelation is of the profound mystery that's been taking place through the story and very often it's just a vision of um paralysis and there are um they're extraordinary lines but i don't understand them at all of course i don't because they're a mystery but they communicate something to me very very deeply like at the end of um the dead the image of the shannon um and the snow um falling all over ireland um into the um, dark mutinous Shannon waves you have I don't know I don't even know how to describe it but it's something that kind of possesses me deep down into my heart's core those things are really important to me and those things have made me uh, you know have want to um, spend my life as an artist because they're helping kind of almost protect something that's um, important, invisible, enormous, 
um, and ununderstandable. Uh, and I have no words, and I'd be hopeless teaching it, <laughs> because uh, they communicate something that's essentially mysterious, but at the same time incredibly um, important. Thank you for listening to Cheek by Gel's podcast. Not true, but useful. If you're interested to find out more about any of the plays we discussed today, or read the scene from Macbeth, take a look at the podcast notes to find links to more information. In the meantime, I've been your host, Lucy Dawkins, and the music you're listening to was composed by Pavela Kimkin.